Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The COVID pandemic is surging again in the United States with some 638,000 dead and about 4.5 million casualties worldwide. As the Delta variant surges across nearly half the U.S. population that's unvaccinated, air travel is plunging and hospitals overflowing as oxygen runs out and patients are unfortunately turned away. Public health officials expect this wave to be even worse as we head into the winter, given the Delta variant is at least twice as contagious as preceding variants. Chinese air travel has rebounded as the United States enters the final days of its withdrawal from Afghanistan in the wake of a terror attack that killed 13 Americans and 170 Afghans. A U.S. attack today appears to have thwarted a planned car bomb assault uh, on the Kabul airport. Britain, France, Germany, Spain, and the Netherlands, among other countries, completed their pullouts last week, despite acknowledging that thousands of Afghans have been left behind to an uncertain future as the Taliban's promise of amnesty is running headlong into the reality of reprisals, disappearances, and outright executions of those who worked with allied forces. U.S. and allied forces have evacuated some 114,000 people as of today. Credit goes to American and allied military members, but also to private companies that went above and beyond the call of duty to pull out Afghan employees and their families, sparing their lives and their futures. In Washington, the House passed the Biden administration's bipartisan infrastructure measure, as well as a giant Democratic spending plan that's widely expected to be rejected in the Senate. The House Armed Services Committee chairman, Washington Democrat Adam Smith, has issued his markup that includes 12 more F-18s for the Navy, a new tactical nuclear weapon, as well as an additional destroyer. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss the week on world markets, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy in Washington, D.C., Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. And a very happy uh, English bank holiday to you all. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. An absolute pleasure, guys. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fink Contieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Air Space Conference uh, and trade show. Ron, uh, fascinating week. COVID obviously has been raging, impacting air travel. Uh, it's going to get a lot, lot worse, unfortunately, I, uh, we think, before it gets a lot, lot better. Uh, we've got Afghanistan playing out, a terror attack there, uh, and certainly the infrastructure measure and the, and the HASP mark. Walk us through the week and how the group fared. Yeah, so you know, broadly looking at a lot of the things we, we look at, um, oil prices bumped up a little bit, you know, pushing in the high 60s. Um, interest rates are, you know, looking at the, the 10 year, it's it's flittering at about the 1.3% level um, up from 1.2. Looks like 1.2 is a bottom. And it seems like now we're on a trajectory back up for a bit. There's still inflation worries out there, so on and so forth. Um, interestingly enough, if you look at the group, um, uh, the group, you know, the S&P broadly uh, for the week was up about one and a half percent. Um, the defense stocks uh, did you know, you know, largely in line with it. If you look at, say, Lockheed Martin as a bellwether of, of defense, um, the uh, it was up uh, just under one and a half percent. And if you look at Raytheon Technologies as kind of a bellwether for commercial, 
um, you know, it was up uh, about one and a half percent. The real star of the week uh, was uh, Embraer. Embraer was up uh, uh, 23%. Uh, and, and I think that's um, after reporting strong earnings last week and, and some other goings on, some order activity for them. And I think some recognition that, um, you know, their, their business jet business is doing well and that they're also, you know, they joined this foray for um, uh, EV tolls and that, if anything really truly does happen there, uh, having a company that's actually made airplanes before probably has a reasonable chance of making an airplane that can actually get certified in that market. So uh, I think that's the wrap up on the week. I mean, for all the events that happened, it was actually a pretty quiet week in the market, at least in A&D land. And, and I might add a lot of um, uh, investors are, are out. This is big vacation time. And right. you know, when I send an email out to kind of my the, the group of people I communicate with, Literally, I'm getting back hundreds of out, out of the offices. So it's, it's there's a you know it's a quiet time. Well, obviously, uh, kids returning back to school, kids returning also back to college, uh, and then some folks obviously as we head into uh, what is a Labor Day weekend, right? Uh, are have decided to take a little bit of time off uh, as well. Let me let me take you to the Hask uh, mark. Um, it includes the F-18, uh, which for many people was uh, seen as a bellwether. Right. If if the administration and Congress was willing to trade away legacy capabilities, free investment for a new generation of airplane, that was the uh, Navy's logic. Um, we have another destroyer in there. So that I think is welcome. There's a nuclear cruise missile. That's very, very welcome uh, for uh, strategists, certainly uh, to I- increase strategic uncertainty for for China uh, or any other power that wants to mess with the United States. Right. I mean, we, we tend to have ballistic missiles. Uh, and then not anything else that can uh, be a, a, a different weapon uh, than that. Um, are there any lessons to be drawn from this F-18 uh, order? Uh, and then Richard, maybe bring you into this, you know, breaking with our regular order to sort of get your sense on, on whether or not this means more of the same. Because if I recall, Richard, you were convinced there were going to be F-18s <laughs> in this budget, whether anybody, you know, whether the CNO or anybody else wanted it or not. Ron, Ron why don't you start us off on that? as to whether or not there is a change sentiment there and maybe we have to recalibrate our expectations or maybe our expectations of change were overrated. Well, I mean, a couple of factors, right? So, you know, the budget as presented by the administration, at least for defense, was really forward leaning on, you know, on, on change, new equipment, new kit, and we're sort of ignoring some of the old stuff. And a, a, a budget, you know, I'm, I'm 100% in line with, you know, Richard's commentary, a budget that didn't have F-18s is just sort of ridiculous, right? I mean, really, the Air Force is going to buy F-15s and the Navy's not going to get F-18s. That's just dumb. Um, so, it, it, you know, I think what you're seeing here is a correction that, or maybe in addition to, you just can't buy the new, you still have to buy some of the old, maintain the old. And then, of course, even if you don't need some of the old, the old has strong coalitions within many circles of government and industry and lobbying that support those things. So, um, you know, the, the odds of having a budget without F-18s in it was, I think, you know, kind of zero from from the get-go. So it's, it's, it's not all that surprising. But I think what you're seeing, if there's a lesson to be learned, that there's some balance between the new and the old. And you know, we'll see ultimately where that balance falls out. But you know, if I were a guessing person, I'd say you're going to see actually a little bit more waiting on the old than the new. But if you get some of the new in there, that's a move in the right direction, right? So, Richard, let me uh, bring you into this again, breaking with our normal regular order. Um, you know, give us your sense on what you think this means, because I know you've taken a look at what's in there on on the aviation side of the equation, and, and what do you what what are some of the broader lessons you're drawing? 
Uh, or, or is it that we're in just a transition period? We're waiting for the administration to put the new budget out, right? I mean, anybody who knows uh, this team and certainly knows Frank Kendall uh, will will expect there to be some major muscle movement uh, in this in this upcoming budget and and multi year uh, spending uh, plan that's going to come out early next year from the administration. Well, yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, as Ron said, this was a forward looking. Uh, budget with uh, an emphasis on RDT&E to the expense of uh, sustainment and procurement. But inherently, that sort of approach is uh, kind of going to lend itself to plus ups because uh, also, as Ron says, you know, it's it's not conceivable that FAA teams won't get inserted. And that's just emblematic, paradigmatic. You know, people are going to say, wow, you know, we want this and uh, this is a buoyant spending environment. We're all eager to show what's, you know, our support. So, inherently the most politically popular part of the budget again sustainment and uh, and procurement is going to be made good that's just the way these things work whether or not that could have been foreseen yeah probably whether it was intentional i don't know what will be interesting to see is when they come out with the budget will there be the accompanying strategic review necessary to you know basically put this all in context for example buying more current generation systems makes sense if you think the threat is more short term next you know three to six or seven years if you really believe that we're in more of a long-term competitive race with peer potential peer adversaries like china for example then no that does not make sense you emphasize next generation systems so it would be interesting to see the strategic context behind which these decisions are being made Sash, do you want to weigh in on that at all? Because this is also a debate that the UK is having in terms of the capabilities it needs to field, obviously, with changing great power adversaries. Queen Elizabeth is in the Pacific with with an air wing uh, of not just British jets, but a a large number of American F-35 Bravos uh, that are operating from its deck deck in what has got to be one of the most extraordinary carrier air wing deployments we've seen probably since World War II, although I remember being aboard HMS Illustrious in 2007, if I recall correctly, uh, when 24 Marine uh, AV-8Bs, United States Marine Corps AV-8Bs, were operating off of that tiny uh, invincible class deck uh, to demonstrate that uh, we, we could do that and to pave the way for this deployment. So shout out to Beans Van Camp, uh, who uh, commanded that mission on the British side, and Tim Frazier, uh, who was uh, the commanding officer of the ship uh, at the time. Give us your sense, Sash, what some British thoughts would be on how to make this sort of trade-off and, and stay current and balancing legacy with future capability. I think that the UK is beyond... Um, uh, beyond that, the particular trade-off you're at at the moment. I think that if you said to, I mean, with the very, very possible exception of the Typhoon fighter, if you say to the RAF, you can have money now for Tempest or you can have money for Typhoon. If you said to the Navy, you could have, let's be hypothetical, another Type 23 frigate, or you can put money for Type 31 and Type 26, the two new ones, um, if you said to the army, well, the army's already said, we don't want to spend money on Warrior, and we're really not sure we want to spend it on Ajax, we want to spend it on Boxer with the next generation. I think almost all the UK Armed Forces expenditure is on next generation stuff. Now, it may not be transformational, it may not be complete next generation in that set, but there's very little spending going on on legacy platforms at the moment. Uh, the spending is much more focused on 
what the UK will need post-2025 and possibly even post-2030 in the case of, of Tempest. And that's a, you know, that's been, that was the big lesson that came out of the um, uh, Defence Command white paper and the Integrated Defence and Security Review, uh, you know, four, 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 five months ago. Uh, it was that, you know, don't, don't keep on putting good money after bad uh, in that respect. Um, now, does that mean that you can have capability gaps? Yes, and they're very, very, they're painful and embarrassing when they happen. But uh, I think that recognizing that you can just, you know, you, you can keep on putting money in to sustain a contractor base. But if what that does is to actually cause your military capability to atrophy or worse, uh, that's a very, very false lesson to learn. It may be that we've just got less money and we've had to make much more painful lesson, uh, much more painful decisions very, very quickly. But I see this you know, it was, this is certainly what's going on in Germany. The only exception I think in Germany would be, you know, the, 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 the most recent batch of typhoons. The Germans decided they needed to top up to replace their early model typhoons, and then eventually there'll be the spending on, on the tornadoes uh, replacement. But other than that, you know, most countries in Europe are now, I think they've, they, they've, moved, uh, they've moved on quite comprehensively in terms of what, what the spending is on. Um, let, let me just ask a, a quick follow on that. Um, with uh, the German political race now is becoming even more interesting as Laschet slides uh, in the polls, and amazingly, the Social Democrats uh, are the ones who who went from sort of single digit to uh, you know thirty uh, some odd uh, per percent popularity, which which I think is uh, extraordinary. Um, do you think that the dynamic, uh, you know, the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe was interested in? the F-35, Angela Merkel uh, killed that uh, repeatedly, uh, especially during the Trump administration. Do you think that there's a US aircraft option that's out there for the German military as an interim nuclear strike fighter after the uh, retirement of the tornadoes? I don't. I don't see why Germany needs a nuclear strike fighter. Who is dumb enough to lay down dumb nuclear bombs? It is, yes, it's political. Uh, it's, it's, it's deeply political, but it's not an act of war. It hasn't been an act of war for 25 years, probably 35 years. And to insist that you have to have an American aircraft to lay down, you know, for the political act of being able to drop free-form nuclear weapons, it's, it's brain dead on every side of the equation. Uh, so if, if NATO, I mean, it, and I don't think that the, you know, you're absolutely right that, the general elections are chaotic at the moment. The Social Democrats are steaming ahead largely because of self-inflicted wounds by the Christian Democrats and by the Green Party. And the Green Party is just imploding because they have a very politically experienced, inexperienced leader in uh, Annalena Baerbock. And um, she just doesn't come across as being somebody who you, you, you'd want uh, at, you know, in, in the German cabinet to a lot of German uh, electors. Um, I think that the German elections would have thrown up a coalition with with the with the Greens or the Social Democrats. Might yet be both. I can't see either the Greens in a coalition or the Social Democrats in a coalition being terribly interested in buying a, a handful of F-18s for the hell of it. Of course, the Luftwaffe wants it. They want to keep the nuclear weapon role because it is totemic to them. But it's not a, it's not something that delivers a military capability to NATO anymore. And the focus of German industrial spending now is quite clearly on SCAF, FCAT. 
Um, and, and I should have uh, said that it was Olaf uh, Schultz uh, that's uh, in, in that lead. Um, I want to transition the discussion to uh, commercial aviation uh, and then bring it uh, back to Afghanistan before we part, because uh, there there are some thoughts, obviously, there as well. I mean, clearly leading the headlines. And in the time that we've been taping this, the United States appears to have conducted uh, a second strike. Uh, as well to thwart uh, another possible terror attack at the airport, right? If we can keep those attacks away from the airport, uh, the evacuation can continue. And there are still thousands of U.S. troops that have to be evacuated there uh, by the 31st, which is not a lot of time. Um, Commercial aviation. Um, United States uh, traffic continuing to drop. Air carriers uh, are increasingly forcing or compelling their staffs mandating uh, vaccinations, which I think is a very positive thing uh, at the end of the day. Chinese air travel is rebounding. We saw that from Nick Cunningham's uh, great note, uh, Sasha's uh, partner uh, at Agency Partners. Um, how do we need to think about where we are and what this means for traffic and whether or not we're going to look at another really bad couple of months coming up uh, sooner uh, in a way that people might not have anticipated? Uh, you know, it's a real roller coaster week for the um uh, you know, the three big geographic markets. So the US is, in our view, just seeing a real, uh, it's seeing the, the natural end of the holiday season. But I think what's interesting at the moment, but this is just the last couple of weeks, we're seeing that one, uh, the, the, the leisure market suffers from its natural ending of the holidays, but the business market is not seeing the recovery and hence is not sustaining traffic going through in September. Now that could change, you know, I, I could be eating my words very happily next week, but you know, the, the degree to which the US is back to the levels of about two months ago uh, suggests that, you know, the leisure market has, has done all it can this year. There isn't a great deal more to go. Europe flatlining uh, and the European holiday season extends about another two weeks later than the US. So we won't see the European numbers make a material change probably uh, until um, the week after next. Uh, and China up 12%, astonishing for the world's largest single uh, aviation market. Um, why is that? Largely because they dealt with, or they believe they dealt with the last, the, the most recent uh, outbreak, which caused big lockdowns uh, in central uh, China. And therefore you get a quick rebound. I actually think that the the big lesson from China is how fragile these econo- these recoveries are. You can get a really nice recovery. You can think, yeah, we're back to, you know, it's back to the good times. And then it takes one bad outbreak and a bad outbreak of the threshold is very low. Lockdowns imposed and, um, uh, you know, the overall traffic numbers come back again. So I feel pretty uncomfortable uh, and we feel pretty uncomfortable going into, into uh, Q3 um, because, it all just feels as if we're, you know, we're slightly skating on on thin ice in terms of uh, the numbers at the moment. And the the Chinese recovery last week, I, you know, we wouldn't put a great deal of um, uh, great deal of money on that. Actually, dragging the the rest of the world up. Richard, give us your sense, and then Ron. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that there are more things in heaven and earth that are not dreamt of in my philosophies anyway. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> the strength of, unfortunately, the uh, Delta variant is, is well, <laughs> unexpected, everybody. And the U.S. has reemerged, thanks to the South of the U.S., as a massive global glowing red hotspot. That was not expected. I still think that once the problem is solved, 
it's going to come back just as fast as, well, as indicated by the volatility that Sash just uh, described. And what will take it, I'm convinced it will be when kids get that vaccine. The only thing that keeps me from saying, screw it, I don't mind, I'm getting out on the road. If I get a little sick, it's not the end of the world, I'm vaccinated, is my daughter who can't get vaccinated yet. When that is possible, I really won't care. And I'll be back on the road. And I think a lot of people think that way. Another thing I would note about this week, uh, which I think was a very welcome development, was Delta's move to basically kind of thread the needle. Uh, United went with uh, vaccine mandates for employees. America refused to do anything. And Delta said, you know, um, it's very simple. If you don't want to get vaccinated, you have to pay a $200 a month surcharge for your health insurance. With, uh, with other testing measures, and you're welcome to not get vaccinated. I think that was a brilliant move. It basically said to people who are anti-vaccine, as long as we're not going to have to pay for you, uh, that's totally fine. And, uh, you know, on top of that, don't make any protests because this is a private business imposing user fees. And those are two, you know, frankly, conservative priorities. Private businesses able to make decisions and user fees. So I think it was a great way moving forward, and I hope more businesses take a similar approach. Ron? Yeah, I mean, just for us, I mean, kind of simple. I mean, we, we've been looking at getting back to, you know, pre-pandemic travel levels by the middle of 2023, and we're still looking at the middle of 2023. That hasn't changed. So um, that's, uh, you know, not, not a heck of a lot to add, but that's kind of where we are. Add to that, you know, we're sticking with late 2022, but with one big caveat, and that's what whenever um, anyone presented some kind of alphanumeric metaphor for the recovery, you know, UVL, Recumbendale, Nike swoosh, whatever, it, all, all of them had relatively smooth lines, which is not reality. As, uh, as we've just remarked upon, it, it's quite a volatile situation. And no matter what the shape of the recovery looks like, there's going to be those uh, those little squiggles like the one we're seeing now, but we're still sticking just as uh, Ron is with our expectations of a recovery. Sash, uh, let me bring you in and ask you about Delta's order for 321s. Uh, very interesting uh, at the end of the day and may have an impact certainly on Boeing as they make their case for the middle of the market aircraft. And I should also ask you about BAE earnings. I know that we're about a month late Unfortunately, Afghanistan has intervened uh, in that period, and I've been remiss about asking you how their earnings are doing. As several listeners have asked, hey, wait a minute, what does Sash have to say about BAE earnings? So first, uh, start us off. I'm incredibly flattered. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, everybody wants to go to the Oracle of London on these things, especially when it deals with, uh, with Britain's industrial power. Uh, flattery will get me nowhere. Um, Del- no, it really well. A321s yeah, and B321s, yes. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, uh, uh, Delta goes and orders another A321 uh, NEOs. Um, it's not a big order by the standards of Delta's fleet, but what it shows, in our view, is that for, let's say, a segment of the middle of the market, where middle of, and market are all lowercase, but for a segment of that middle of the market, Delta thinks the A321neo whether it is the A321neo vanilla or the 321neo long range or the 321neo uh, uh, XLR, because they don't have to make the decision until about six, eight months before delivery anyway. But for that middle of the market for Delta or for that segment of the middle of the market, 
the 321 does, the 321neo does the job. Uh, so every time you get a major airline buying some A321neos, that just cuts another, in this case, 25 aircraft off Boeing's business case for a, again, lowercase middle of the market aircraft, because the 321neo is, is available here and now. It's coming off the production lines. The XLR comes off the production lines next year. And that really is the category killer in, in terms of uh, long, thin routes. Um, and we simply cannot fathom how Boeing can think that they can take their time on a, on a new product because the market that they set their uh, you know set their hearts on is just being taken by Airbus as it as it uh, you know every you know every single month another airline orders and you know this is now all three of the U.S. Uh, majors have got three twenty one neos on order in some for- shape or form. Once you have them in the fleet. They are like cockroaches. You won't get rid of them. And actually, they're more likely to just to keep on growing and growing because it will do the job for a long period of time. Uh, So this is uh, yet again, you know, Boeing is sitting on their hands. They can't afford to do that. I think we're all in agreement with with that on this podcast. But um, it's just a really interesting thing. Um, uh, so a, powerful, shifting... a very powerful image there. Uh, very powerful image there, uh, Sash. If, if, however, technically accurate, certainly um, we do not want to imply to our good friends uh, in Toulouse that the airplane is anything but beautiful and highly capable. You were saying about the uh, beautiful, highly capable, and impossible to get rid of from an airline's fleet once it's in there. That's that's actually praise, and they know it. And, and let's uh, talk about BAE systems and then Richard uh, and Sash get, a, excuse me, Richard and Ron get a bite at the apple. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I'm not going to ca- carry on with the um, uh, with either the uh, entomological or indeed pest control analogies for BAE. Um, but yeah, BAE is a, re- is a very interesting company. It's the, it is the UK's biggest defense contractor by a long way. But it is clearly also still a major player in the US both land systems and uh, and electronic systems. Um, and it's a very, very major exporter in its own right and, and also in the Eurofighter Consortium. BA has, uh, and it, we're celebrating BA's 40th anniversary this year. It was privatized in 1981. Um, and for much of those 40 years, it was two things happened with BA. Number one, they either won or worked their way through contracts with Saudi Arabia. And at various stages, Saudi Arabia was 100% of BA's pre-tax profits. So it was super concentrated in a single export market. Great when things were going well, less so some other times. And number two, BA was continuing to restructure and occasionally bit off more than it could chew in terms of defense contracts. Stuff would go wrong and they would have to deal with it. And there would be a series of one-offs, which were... In some cases, regional aircraft, uh, Nimrod, uh, air, um, the Nimrod program, the Institute Submarine, brutally painful in terms of earnings and in terms of cash flow. Um, and stuff is starting finally to change with BA. I mean, you know, it, it's reached middle age and uh, it's, you know, it's actually growing up, which is great. So Saudi Arabia has gone from being 25% of earnings, even six, seven years ago, uh, down to, on our estimates, about 12 13%, probably not going to get much higher than that, almost whatever happens, whether they buy some more typhoons or whether they don't, you know, it's just a, it's a smaller proportion of the business. And that's good in terms of risk management. Actually, Qatar comes up to about sort of 7 8% of, uh, of earnings for a while as BA delivers typhoons there. Um, it's got some very, very big stable programs now. So, you know, the electronic systems business in the US, F-35, 
systems, stuff for classified programs that start with B and end with 21. Um, the armored, biz, uh, armored vehicle, AMPV, ACV, um, and actually still, you know, the, the M109 upgrades, those, those have all got terrific visibility. And then in the UK, Dreadnought Marines, Tempest, Type 26 frigates. Um, it's a business which rather than worrying about, can we get an export in the next two, three years or so, they actually have got visibility through the end of dec the decade. And in the case of some of those big UK programs, well into the next decade. And it's coming through in terms of cash flow. They've dealt with the pension deficit. Uh, and so you've got a company generating on their forecasts at least four, four billion of free cash over the next three years. Free cash flow yield of 8%. They actually um, started starting to do a buyback again. Um, BA hasn't been able to do a buyback for about the last five years or so. So it just looks to us to be a much healthier, more stable business than it's been actually easily in five years, probably more like six or seven years. Um, good capital structure, raising the dividend. And as that cash flow comes through, BA starts to have the optionality. Do they do more buybacks or do they do more M&A or a bit of both? Um, BA has been very, very uh, binary in terms of M&A. You know, they've had periods when they've done a lot. Last uh, Two years ago, they did, bought the Rockwell Collins uh, GPS and airborne radio business, which was a uh, you know, very attractive strategic asset, but but they've had periods when they've done very little. I think the you know our view is we're actually going to see BAE being much more consistent in terms of uh, looking at, at strategic targets now. And you know, if if they wanted to le to lever up, which has not been a luxury they've had in the last uh, decade or so, they could do something significantly bigger. So it's as it's as interesting a time, and this, in our view, but this is us as brokers. You know, stocks as attractively valued as we've seen it in a very long time, um, and free cash flow that is, you know, several points ahead of the US peers, let alone the Europeans. Richard and uh, Ron, uh, commentary on the 321 order, commercial traffic, but also BAE systems, given that you guys do uh, at least keep an eye on the company one way or another. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, uh, nothing, uh, nothing we haven't said before about the 321neo, and just a couple of add-ons to Sash's comments, which are dead on, you know, I, I, I think there's probably a lot of frustrated people in Seattle wondering what the hell Chicago is thinking and not even talking about possible responses. Uh, point number one, 321 Neo, okay, maybe etymologically or entomologically, I suppose, um, maybe not a car, not good. I mean, it's, 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 it's in the right place at the right time, but it's not the ideal plane. It's going to do incredibly well only, only if, Boeing does nothing. Otherwise, you know, I think it would be a lot like when they launched the Triple Seven, and it took on the A340. Uh, you know, it would, it would Boeing would do extremely well in this market. But right now, they're doing nothing bizarre, inexplicable, and Airbus is going to win. And the 321 Neo, and as Sash points out, all three U.S. majors. But take a moment to think about the role of United in that. United stayed away from the 321 bandwagon until October of 2019. And United Management is Continental Management. They never met an Airbus plane they really like. Uh, the idea of them not going Boeing was inconceivable, but they realized the strength of a fragmented international route network powered by 321s, and they joined. And they'll get more, uh, again, not to double down on that cockroach metaphor, but yep, it's going to be tough to get out of the fleet mix. And the longer Boeing waits, the harder it comes to get into that fleet mix. So all quite bizarre and indefensible in a lot of ways. Um, another point I would make 
um, is that, you know, this is, you look at the, how long it's taken airlines to reach this point where they say, hey, you know, if we don't fly three people through a hub internationally, um, we only have to take off and land half as many times. This thing makes its own gravy. You get better pricing power, lower costs, and even lower emissions from an ESG standpoint. So I think this just gathers steam. Um, and the 321neo, again, becomes harder and harder to get out of the mix. Uh, so kudos to, well, both Delta and Airbus for ordering planes in this rather difficult time. And, uh, and we'll see whether Boeing finally, finally, finally gets the message. It makes its own gravy, although it's going to be a battle between makes its own gravy and what was a brilliant, if repulsive, cockroach uh, analogy. Ron? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I agree with uh, both Richard and, um, and Sasha's comments on, um, you know, the Delta order. It's just, it's just more of the same. I mean, Boeing, um, I think, um, I think what Sasha said, you know, Boeing's, you know, been sitting on their hands, right? It's just, they, they should do something. It gets more complicated, right? Because you, you look at the balance sheet, and they want to stretch the balance sheet more. If they did an airplane, would they have to do an offering and all kinds of stuff? But uh, in, in the end, that would be an equity offering. Um, in the end, um, you know, doing nothing is not uh, uh, much of a viable response. And the longer they wait, it's just the harder it gets. Uh, it's plain and simple. So, um, it, you know, it, it is it is what it is. Uh, and then, and the only other piece I would add on on BAE is um, um, they have a substantial business in the U.S. with um, some you know wonderful assets here. So. Um, I mean, that's uh, been um, a, a good uh, kudo for them. Uh, Could I quickly add something about BAE? Of course. You know, from my standpoint, uh, BAE's story over the past couple of decades kind of reminds me of Mayor Quimby from uh, Springfield and the Simpsons. You know, uh, well, everything's falling apart. Uh, I'm going to go move to be elected mayor in another town. Uh, when I've done that, I will send for the rest of you. I mean, in other words, everything they've done in, in Britain has been vulnerable and, and fraught with problems. Sash outlined a lot of them. Um, but whenever they, uh, they, as Ron says, build an empire in North America, or sell planes to the Saudis, as Sash said, or, or, or Qatar, they do really well. Uh, it's kind of an interesting, uh, it, it's almost sort of the reversal of some US players that have had hard times in the export market on occasion, but have done extremely well at home. BAE is sort of the reversal of that. The home market is uh, problematic, but exports, boy, they're really good at that. I'm, I'm gonna uh, shift to Afghanistan and a theme um, first, I sort of bristle. I mean, some people are discussing this as a latter day Dunkirk. And I don't like that analogy for a whole bunch of historical reasons, in part because Dunturk, Dunkirk was a highly contested military evacuation. And this is a civilian, you know, this is a military evacuation of, you know, not, not under fire. There was a terror attack. There was a terror attack and that was terrible, but that's very, very different from having the Luftwaffe strafe you and, you know, e-boats firing torpedoes at you and running, you know, Royal Navy running minefields to uh, evacuate 330,000 soldiers off of a, of, off of a beach. Um, but more specifically, there are lessons uh, to be learned from this. And one of them was the post-Cold War notion of of relying on contractors for maintenance to the extent we did. This has been something the military services have been changing over the past couple of years, recognizing that the contractors may, you know, get pulled out or may withdraw on their own. 
as we saw occasionally during this when things got bad, whether in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, companies were trying to protect their people, and that can cause downstream problems. Afghans had weapons. Uh, and the same with Iraqis. They were dependent on American contractors. American troops leave. The contractors leave. The countries still have weapons that they can't maintain. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people were advocating, let him, let the Afghan and Iraqi armies keep using AK-47s, let them keep using Russian military helicopters because they're durable and fit, fit for purpose. Um, Sash, the contractor-supported model really came from the U.K., uh, obviously, UK trying to get a lot of bang for their buck. And the whole notion was that if we uh, contractorize something, it, it may seem more expensive, but you're actually saving more money, right? It was a more efficient way of doing business. And now we're becoming coming to realize that actually the name of the game is not efficiency, it's military efficacy uh, and military efficacy under under fire. That may be harder to do if you're as relying on contractors as you are now. What are some of the lessons you guys are deriving of this uh, entire experience. I know, Richard, you, you've you been making some interesting comparisons to the Vietnam War and where things are similar and, and not. And I just kind of want to go around the horn um, on, on where your thinking is. Uh, and in your case, Ash, you know, was a lot of British embitterment toward uh, the United States last week, uh, even though there were some people here and some people there who were saying that that was somewhat misplaced. But, you know, give, give, us, give us a sense on all those uh, as this mission will be definitively over uh, by the time we reconvene. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, look, there's at least three separate questions there. First of all, uh, you're absolutely right. This is not Dunkirk. It's a non-combatant evacuation operation. It is not a, uh, an evacuation under, um, under attack with no air superiority, with, with nothing. It, it is the one area where there is a Dunkirk analogy, um, and I'd point you back to the... Um, uh, the film The Battle of Britain, um, uh, um, I think late 60s, no, early 70s, there is an, a, an image in that of the Dunkirk beaches after the evacuation is over with burning and derelict vehicles and destroyed equipment just scattered along the Dunkirk beach for, you know, near five miles. It's a horrible image because that's the image of an army in, that has been utterly defeated in material terms. And that image is very similar to what we've seen at Bagram and what we will probably see at Karbala. And it's horrible because that just reminds you, we lost, we lost big. Um, and I'm using we in, in the broadest sense there. I'll leave it, I'll leave that there. Contractorization. My worry about your thesis on contractorization is that I think what we have here is, and this will come as no surprise to uh, any of the four of us, and probably not necessarily to, to many of our listeners, we've got here um, two nations um, uh, separated by a common language. Contractorization in the UK typically means the base, the stuff that is done by the depots, the bases in the US is done by the companies, but the UK typically does the forward support of uh, equipment with a very, very high proportion of uniformed troops. Yes, there are um, uh, contractors who do forward support as well, but typically not very much. Um, it's, it's almost all uniformed. Whereas I think in the US, you've actually inverted that. You have the, the depots in the US, which are government-owned, government-run, government-controlled, whatever, and then your contractors have actually come and done your forward support. And 
that appears to be one of the weaknesses that has come out of uh, the last, um, well, particularly the last month, but possibly even uh, the last couple of years, because it does mean that you're very, very vulnerable to um, those contractors either not turning up or not being able to uh, to do the job they're required to, or an extremist not being able to defend themselves when stuff goes wrong. And I think you know one of the reasons why the Afghan uh, forces collapsed so comprehensively, although let's face it, there are a lot of reasons for that, was the um, uh, the fact that the support for, in my view, overly sophisticated uh, equipment disappeared when the contractors went. But I think it's important, you know. The, the UK and to some extent other European countries don't tend to bring the contractors as far forward. They certainly are not on the flight line, which is what uh, you have had in some circumstances uh, it, with, with the US Air Force and, and forces. Richard or Ron? Yeah, I'd like to take um, two points. One, the Dunkirk thing, what makes it almost, I think, dangerously dunderheaded as an analogy is the idea that this is a strategic priority. Uh, for the U.S., it's it's not. It takes me back to the Vietnam debate. You know, you had this growing Soviet threat in Europe, and for some reason, it was obvious to people who I guess think strategically somehow that the best way to deal with this 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 truly civilization-defining, very dangerous existential threat was to go and fight in some rebellion in a backwater country in faraway Asia. I still don't understand that in the broader context of the history of the last century. With all due respect to the Vietnamese, they're, they're lovely people, but I, I well, right, I mean, don't it was understand the, that war at it was, all. It was, it was the domino school, right? It's going to fall here. It'll fall elsewhere. And there were those who would say that the success of the communists in Vietnam did empower movements in Latin America and elsewhere. The whole point was that communism, in fact, eventually collapsed, right? 15, nobody in 1975 would have understood that by 1990, it was really all but over, right? Um, Yes, but, you know, even in the 60s, it was very obvious that what really mattered were the Western democracies, Western Europe, that means, and of course, North Atlantic and other countries that basically basically we're not vulnerable to this kind of nonsense because that kind of nonsense happens in these places anyway. Uh, so for God's sake, protect NATO, protect the West. And that wasn't being done because of this massive diversion of resources. And here again, I think you've got an administration, actually both administrations, both Trump and Biden, widely, wisely realized that there is a similar major strategic threat. It is China. The idea of divert- diverting resources to a lost cause is, well, a a misplaced strategic priority. So it was just a question of who would get us out, under what circumstances. I think looking at several thousand years of people exiting Afghanistan, it all kind of looks the same. Um, Maybe not as bad as Dr. Bryden arriving at Jalalabad on the sole surviving mule of the British Army, circa 1842. But, you know, it all kind of looks the same. Uh, So the, the Dunkirk analogy, you know, in Dunkirk, that was their main strategic threat, being defeated by them mattered. This is not that at all. It, it, and it, I think it, it's falling prey to that same complete misunderstanding of strategy that I find a bit uh, disturbing. Now, getting to the issue of contractorization, boy, Sash makes a great point. I would add to that a uh, point Fred Kaplan has made, uh, which is that we try to create an army with uh, a an Afghan army with 
a fairly complex set of interdependencies on sophisticated capabilities, rather than following the kind of light, mobile, and most of all, independent forces you've seen in some of the very, very few successful counterinsurgency campaigns. You know, we didn't do that at all. Instead, we came up with something more or less in our mirror image, which inherently is going to be very dependent upon contractors or a high level of uh, government-owned infrastructure. Either way, it's, it's just it's just not at all independent. It's not at all light, not at all mobile, and most of all, not at all survivable when some of it begins to get chipped away at. I should point out, right, David Brooks has a great piece uh, on how uh, Islamist movements have actually been faring remarkably poorly around the world, uh, which may factor into this, right, that a lot of the most severe uh, groups end up actually getting run out on their ear, whether that's ISIS, whether it's a very radical Taliban, you still need the people. And when they get political, they tend to get a little bit uh, smarter in terms of uh, trying to survive, you know, noted, you know, Morsi and how Egyptians turned on a Muslim Brotherhood uh, government. So I think that was a very compelling read. Although I would say that there was strategic interest in us going to Afghanistan. We had just been attacked in 9-11. The question is, what was the right way to prosecute that campaign over a protracted period of time? And, and we're just a country that does not have, we can have strategic patience under the right circumstances. In other cases, we sometimes lack it. Uh, which which was this case, and I understand how corruption and everything else inter- intervened in that. Ron, your your thoughts as we wrap this up? Yeah, when I think about the the contractorization, you know, I, I kind of look at seven eight seven as sort of this allegory of, you know, if you kind of contract out too much, you outsource too much from whatever project you're doing, you lose. Um, you know, the devil's always in the details, right? So. And I think you can read that across, um, you know, markets and markets, um, circumstances or whatever, that there's a, a balance between what can be contracted out and what you have to keep yourself in order to kind of keep control of the process. And that can be anything from, you know, prosecuting, uh, you know, a, a military engagement to building an aircraft or just you, you name it. So, um, you know. That's generally how I think about it. Maybe that's an oversimplified terms, but you know, broadly there has to be a balance between the two or you, know, you lose control of what's going on if you have too much of it contracted out. And just remind the audience, right? In the case of 787, what happened and what was different briefly before we wrap up? Yeah, so, so on 787, right? I mean, you know, internally, 787 was uh, originally pitched as a, as a $5 billion development program. Yes, five. Um, and... Every subsystem on the airplane and a lot of the major systems were outsourced all the way down to, you know, sort of mind numbing at the time, you know, Boeing outsourced the wing, right? I mean, the, uh, the center wing box and everything, you know, that, that got, you know, outsourced to uh, one of the major Japanese contractors. So, you know, the, the, the entire airplane was essentially outsourced. And, and the model was that you'd get these finished sections of the airplane delivered in Everett and you'd be able to snap one airplane together quite literally, uh, in a week, right? And that was the model, right? You'd get section 41 delivered from Wichita with all the controls and everything in it. Uh, and then, you know, all these different sections would show up akin to maybe, you know, the concept behind a a Virginia class submarine. Uh, and you just kind of put them together. Uh, and it, you know, was a colossal failure, um, because you, you had different pieces of the supply chain, you know, not exactly talking to each other, things showing up in different conditions of work, folk, you know, different suppliers 
getting to you know different levels. And in the end, when all this stuff showed up, uh, the, the level of rework and out of position work and everything that had to get done was really kind of a nightmare. And this development program that was supposed to cost five billion in the end um, cost thirty billion, about thirty billion. You know, some people would argue maybe a little more, maybe a little less. Um, but 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 that's what happened. And 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 then you know it's 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 this true allegory in that. You know, you, you can write it down on paper and it looks good if you have like, you know, different, you know, contractors who are experts and X, Y, or Z doing all this. But in the end, it's your project, you know, it's your your mission. And there's some level of control that you, you really have to understand the details because if the pieces show up or the, the submissions happen and you're not, you know, you don't have that, that detailed knowledge, um, it's really easy for um, things to not prosecute the way you want them to. I think that that is a great uh, analogy and something we're thinking about as everybody grapples uh, with uh, the lessons uh, of uh, this war, certainly, as it enters a new phase. I, I don't think it's fair to say that it's over. It's, it's not going to be over because the United States is still going to have to maintain some bandwidth there because the whole reason for us going there was to stop it from becoming a terror haven. Ideally, we want the Taliban to have turned a new leaf and to be inclusive and to give these kind of amnesties. But as we're seeing, that might not be the case. And the Haqqani network is pretty bad and a lot of pretty bad Al-Qaeda guys were released from prisons. I thought it was most interesting. The number one thing the Taliban did when they came to Kabul was shoot the ISIS leader, um, um, which was kind of interesting, who was in custody in, uh, by the previous uh, administration in, in Kabul. Uh, guys, thanks very much. Pleasure as always. Really appreciate it. Have a great week and looking forward to having you guys on again next week. Thanks very much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thanks so much. Thanks, Vago. Looking forward to next week. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.